The next case was presented by Dr. Moss to Dr. Natalie. So this is a 63-year-old female who presented about a year ago with a stage 4 adenocarcinoma of the lung with mediastinal, pleural, and bone metastases. She also had some COPD. And she was treated with carboplatin and olympta with a minor response and then stable disease. And I continued her on olympta maintenance for about six months. At that point, she developed an interesting syndrome of swelling and pain in both lower extremities. Now, this swelling was considerable. It was about four plus. Her pain was severe, and I had no idea what was going on. Of course, we did venous Dopplers. They were negative, and I couldn't figure it out. So they were also somewhat reddish, so I started her on steroids. She received a short course of steroids, and I held the Olympta, and it improved. Didn't get completely better, but it improved. And so I started the Olympta again. She was off the steroids, and it came back even worse the second time. At that point, we stopped the Olympta, put her on some steroids, and it's gotten completely better. And in our discussion with her, she described it, I thought, very well to Ron. And I had never seen anything like this before, but it developed on Olympta, went away, and recurred on Olympta. So maybe you can mention the smoking history and also what her current tumor status is in terms of, you know, where it is and whether she has symptoms from it. It was clearly smoking related. She smoked up to two packs a day for over 20 years, but she quit in 1983. And interestingly, a sister who was a heavy smoker died of cancer. We don't know if it was lung cancer, but cancer at age 48. Going back to the original decision, Bob, she got carboplatin and pemetrexid. But did she have any major contraindications to bevacizumab, and was that something you considered initially? In this case, I don't think she had any major contraindications. I didn't consider it because I decided to use carbo-olympta, and it's an expensive combination to use olympta and bevacizumab. And I hadn't seen any literature specifically on that combination, so I decided not to go with the bevacizumab. So, Ron, just looking back to that initial decision before we get into this issue with the leg edema, how do you think you might have thought through the initial therapy of this patient and specifically whether or not you might have used bevacizumab? Yeah, and Bob and I actually talked about it because I raised that question. And Bob gave a very thoughtful answer that I think reflects what all medical oncologists face in trying to make an individual patient decision that there's data to support the use of bevacizumab combined with chemotherapy. We talked about the NCCN guidelines, for example, that recommend bevacizumab with any platinum-based first-line chemotherapy, either carboplatin or cisplatin-based. And now that platinum combined with pemetrexid is a recommended first-line treatment option for patients with non-squamous cell, non-small cell lung cancer, the co-administration of bevacizumab would be in keeping with NCCN guidelines. But in trying to make that decision, what oncologists have to think about and what Bob has to think about is the patient's age, recognizing that there's some data to show that older patients do suffer greater toxicities, hematologic toxicities, for example, when bevacizumab is added to carboplatin paclitaxel in ECOG 4599. 
that there are risks, albeit low, but risks nevertheless of pulmonary hemorrhage. And then finally, some of the economic risks. And for this patient in particular, Bob very thoughtfully informed me that the co-pays for this patient for medications are enormous. And he was treating this patient with carboplatin and pemetrexid, probably the best first-line regimen available, co-administering Zometa because this woman has bone metastases, and was concerned and had to weigh the potential value of bevacizumab versus its toxicity and its costs for this patient with incurable stage 4 lung cancer. And I think that's the kind of compromise that every doctor has to make and think about in an individual patient. And so I thought that he made a decision that was very patient-specific. Now, how did this woman present, Bob? Did she have tumor-related symptoms? How was she picked up? She had flu-like symptoms. I didn't see her right at that time, but she had flu-like symptoms, and a chest X-ray was done for presumably some sort of viral syndrome, and that picked up a right upper lobe mass. In your assessment initially, did you feel she had tumor-related symptoms, or was it just coincidentally picked up? I don't think she had tumor-related symptoms per se. I think she had some symptoms of COPD, but I don't think there was anything really acute going on. She had just complained of some cough, probably some increased cough, and that's what really prompted the x-ray. So, Ron, what's your take on this leg edema? Have you seen it before, or do you think it's related to the pemetrexid? Yeah, well, Bob proved that it was due to the pemetrexid. I mean, have you seen that? No, I've never seen it, and I've given pemetrexid to hundreds of patients. But this was some type of a lower extremity vasculitis that was associated with edema and redness of the skin. They got better when the pemetrexid was discontinued, recurred when the pemetrexid was restarted. He stopped the pemetrexid, and when I saw her with him, she was clearly doing better, and things had nearly resolved, not quite completely yet, but she was doing much better. And what's her lifestyle like, Bob? What's her social situation? Does she have a spouse, and how does she spend her time? She is divorced. She has two children. She works in sales, and I believe she has been working recently, although she hasn't worked that much over the last year or so. And she gets around. She has a lot of friends. Ron, you said you've used Pemetrexid quite a bit, and that you know, you've never even seen this complication. What do you typically see with Pemetrexid? What are the side effects and toxicities you most commonly see? Well, the most common side effects that patients will tell you about is the fatigue. The fatigue that will occur that first week after receiving Pemetrexid. In fact, I altered the dexamethasone schedule when I administer Pemetrexid. I give it intravenously the day of the treatment, but rather than giving it the day before, the day of, and the day after, I have patients take it for three consecutive days after the Pemetrexid. So they're taken orally on days two, three, and four. And in my experience, it significantly decreases that immediate post-treatment fatigue. Now, I've got a lot of patients who'll tell me that they'll feel the fatigue on day five, but it's shortened to a couple of days rather than lasting four, five, six days. Any thoughts about the pathophysiology of the fatigue? What's going on? Well, I don't know pathophysiology. I'm not sure I can answer that specifically, except that this is something that we see with a lot of chemotherapy. It's especially noticeable with pemetrexid and with docetaxel. In fact, in the randomized trial of docetaxel versus pemetrexid in the second-line setting, 
although pemetrexid in general had far fewer severe adverse toxicities. It had far lower hematologic toxicity than docetaxel. There was no hair loss, of course, but it was equal to docetaxel with respect to post-treatment fatigue, something we've always associated with docetaxel. And of course, it did have a low incidence of low-grade liver function test abnormalities that for almost all patients is self-resolving. What about your experience, Bob, in terms of side effects and toxicity with pemetrexid? In my experience, patients do very well with it. We don't see a lot of myelosuppression. There is fatigue, definitely, and I think that's often really the main side effect that we see. I've never seen anything like this, by the way, before, this lower extremity vasculitis. But I don't see a lot of nausea and vomiting. Certainly, there's no hair loss. So fatigue really stands out as the main side effect. How would you compare this woman's overall functioning quality of life today compared to when she first started treatment? She's much better. I think it's a good question you ask because I think in retrospect, thinking about it from that standpoint, she probably was a little symptomatic from her cancer because she certainly was coughing a lot more. She was more short of breath at that time. It wasn't clear to me that those were tumor-related symptoms at that time, but in seeing her now, she actually looks quite good, and she still has disease, but she looks 100% better. What was your take on her run overall, globally, her personality, the way she's been dealing with this whole situation? She's doing quite well. Bob has a very warm, engaging relationship with his patients. It was a real pleasure to be with him. And he relates quite well to the quality of their life, to what's going on in their lives. And she's doing quite well right now. She's completely independent, takes care of herself, has an independent lifestyle, is glad to have this unusual side effect from pemetrexid improving so that she can get back to doing all the things that she likes to do. What would you be thinking about, Bob, if and when she were to develop progressive disease? Of course, you know, that depends upon exactly how that happens. But in general, what might you be thinking about as your next line of treatment? I think I have two choices, two main choices, erlotinib or docetaxel. Since she's been through a lot, and the syndrome that she had involved a lot of swelling, I think I'd probably go with erlotinib. How about you, Ron? What would you be thinking about? Yeah, I agree with Bob. Of course, in my world, I would consider her for a clinical trial and an investigational agent where we and other centers that have lung cancer programs are making a major effort to look at predictive molecular markers that we would look for to help possibly select targeted therapy. But I think Bob is exactly right. The choice for this woman is between erlotinib and docetaxel. I agree with him that for someone who's been through some chemotherapy problems already, that depending on when the relapse occurs, he might more strongly favor erlotinib rather than the chemotherapy option. But, you know, that remains to be seen. What about second-line bevacizumab chemo, particularly if, for example, she gets symptomatic again, Ron? It certainly would be an option. Again, we're all sensitive to the fact that third-party payers may have something to say about this. Clinical trials have suggested that the addition of bevacizumab to erlotinib or bevacizumab to chemotherapy may improve the response rate or the progression-free survival. However, the trials also show that there's no overall survival advantage. So I think the decision 
for each oncologist as to whether or not they add bevacizumab to second-line therapy is, again, going to be that balance of trying to weigh what is the benefit versus the adverse effects that could be augmented and the costs that are going to be extraordinary. And I think in the current healthcare environment, I think all oncologists have become much more cognizant of costs, and we are being expected to be partners in this cost containment. So from that perspective, Bob, and this woman and, you know, other patients, do you actually bring up, you know, therapies like bevacizumab and say, you know, this is something that some doctors might use, maybe a lot of doctors might use, but I think probably we shouldn't use it on you because you're going to have to pay out of pocket X amount, or do you just not bring it up? It's a good question. Usually if I feel that this, and I've handled it different ways. Usually if I feel that in my own mind, I'm pretty secure that the cost-benefit analysis for that patient is not a good one, I would just as soon not bring it up. I mean, they're overwhelmed with the explanations of what we're going to do already. So to bring something up and then say, but we're not going to do that, or I don't recommend doing that, I think is difficult for patients to get their head around. So normally I don't do that. In situations where I have a real option, this therapy versus that therapy, then I will bring it up in that sense. I'll make a recommendation, but say, but we also could do this, and there are certain advantages and disadvantages to going with the second option. But in terms of adding bevacizumab to the chemotherapy, I usually reserve that decision myself. Anything else that you want to comment about her or her case? Well, one of the things I wanted to expand a little bit on this last point that you raised about to what extent does Bob inform his patients regarding all of their options. You know, it's easy for people like me who are in quaternary centers and who are often the second or third or fourth consultant, you know, down the line in patients and their families trying to get information to have a very comprehensive discussion with patients regarding their various treatment options because they're coming to me with a much broader and richer database of information. And so one of the eye-openers for me and helped to reinforce an impression that I've always had is that for the community oncologist, they do have to make a decision regarding how much information to provide for a patient. And I was glad to hear Bob say the same thing that even though I am sometimes a second or third consultant that I sometimes practice is that I'm not always consistent. I don't have things carved in stone that this is what I'm going to do for every single patient. You do learn a lot from patients during that process of getting their history and their physical, seeing the interactions of family members in the room, and listening to what their concerns are, and trying to make a judgment of how much information to give, how many different options to talk about, because some you know you want to take off the table, so why burden them with that information? It is a tricky situation, particularly in that, you know, this is not a curable situation. And sorry, bevacizumab is not going to make it a curable situation. On the other hand, I can tell you that if we presented this 63-year-old woman in one of our national patterns of care studies, by far and away, 
you know, without looking at the patient and thinking about the individual, the first reflex is going to be just what you said, Ron, right off the NCCN guidelines, chemo, probably carbo, pemetrexid, plus BEV. Absolutely. And in one of those roundtable discussions with thought leaders, they would have said that despite the fact that this woman has a 40-pack year history of cigarette smoking, she hasn't smoked for 27 years, that she should have an EGFR mutation test done right off the bat before a treatment decision is made. That's another good point we'll get into later, but just as long as you brought that up, what about EGFR mutation testing in your practice, Bob? How easy or difficult is it to get it, and how often do you get it? It's actually easy to get. There are plenty of labs that do it, and we just have the pathologists send it out to the lab of their choice. So I have been getting it fairly frequently, but as Ron and I were talking about, this is an evolving area, and even though I do get it frequently, I'm not always sure exactly how I should be using the information because the situation seems to be different for strange reasons in first-line therapy versus second or third-line therapy. So I do get it, but I think I'm still learning how best to use that information. And Ron, you know, it's interesting because, you know, Bob, we've worked on education programs in breast cancer and you name it. And, you know, he has the perspective of multiple tumors and you know, you wouldn't think about managing a patient with breast cancer without a HER2 and an ER and, you know, now increasingly things like Oncotype. And yet I see people being selective about who they get EGFR mutations on. And I think about if I were me, even if I were a current smoker, I mean, I guess it's pretty small odds. I still might want to see that test done on my tissue. Oh, I agree. And I think there's not a consensus about this issue among so-called lung cancer experts. There are some that recommend getting EGFR mutation tests on all patients, and there are others that are much more selective. I think what appears to be evolving now is that most would agree that if in an effort to save money and to try to do testing more selectively, what I've heard and what appeals to me is to do a KRAS mutation first. That will eliminate about 20 to 25% of patients from doing EGFR testing on because if they have a KRAS mutation, that's exclusive, mutually exclusive with an EGFR mutation. So at least you're doing the EGFR mutation testing on a slightly smaller group of patients. Is it more expensive than KRAS testing? You know, the pricing for this, I've looked into this to some extent, and it's all over the board. It is a little less expensive. A couple of the local firms charge about $1,500. Now, as we're moving into more chip-based medicine, you can get a KRAS and an EGFR mutation done on one chip. So maybe some of the cost issues and trying to do a thoughtful, sequential approach to things will go to the sideline, you know, as technology continues to improve and as the cost goes down. So one more question about this patient, Bob, because I really, I'm struck and I'm glad you presented her. I know you're not afraid to, you know, sort of stick your practice out there in front of everybody, but it is very interesting about this issue of BEV. And just to contrast, I'm curious, do you have kind of the same approach to bevacizumab, say with breast and colon cancer, you know, more conservative, so to speak? Well, with colon cancer, definitely not. I use BEV all the time in metastatic colon cancer. In breast cancer, I use it frequently. I don't necessarily use Bev-Paclitaxel or Bev-Tocitaxel as first-line therapy. Sometimes it'll be Zolota, and that might be a second-line therapy. But I do use it fairly frequently in breast cancer. And I think the reason is that 
and this may be changing a lot, uh, as I'll probably comment later, but we have the sense that patients with metastatic colon cancer and metastatic breast cancer ultimately do better, and their median survivals tend to be longer. So we may be getting, and again, this is just a gut feeling, we may be getting more out of the BEV in those patients in terms of long-term benefit, whereas patients with non-small cell traditionally don't do nearly as well. And so any benefit is going to be much less. It's interesting because, I mean, actually in breast cancer, we don't have any survival data in BEV. It's all progression-free survival. You know, Ron, it's really hard to indirectly compare, in my mind, Certainly, when I think about breast cancer and lung cancer of the honeybevacizumab, even though they're totally different diseases, but in terms of the benefits, it kind of seems pretty similar to me. I think the problem in lung cancer is that we've got one positive study and we've got one negative study. And there'll be more studies, I think, that will be reported on within the next year. And it remains to be seen, you know, what the consensus opinion regarding the role of bevacizumab in lung cancer will be going forward. Now, when you say one negative study, you're talking about the AVAIL trial? Yes. Why do you call it negative? Because of lack of survival benefit? Exactly. I think, you know, there was a positive impact on progression-free survival, but no overall survival benefit. And of course, going back to breast cancer, that's what we're seeing is progression-free survival. Anyhow, it's the art of oncology when you don't have a curative intent. I mean, who knows what's right or wrong? And I'm glad we got all this out on the table. 